0: Oh, welcome to Sausage of Science. I didn't know we were recording. I'm awesome, Kara. How are you?
1: I'm doing fine. We're totally recording this at the end of fall semester, even though it won't go up until basically the end of spring semester. And so I guess our stress levels right now will actually be translatable to when this episode actually goes up.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, as I just said to like 20,000 of my desultory students who are crawling to the finish line, The great thing about where you and I are in our academic trajectory is unlike grad students and to some extent undergrads, we get to set a lot of our own deadlines. So a lot of the stress that we pile on ourselves is stuff that we can change. We do it to ourselves so we have more control.
1: Self-inflicted.
0: Self-inflicted. We always get things done. So while stress can feel terrible, the things that really need to happen do happen and we need to not let the stress undermine, but rather motivate us. And three, we get paid better than we did when we were grad students and undergrads. And I have found now, certainly there are people out there for whom this is not true and are gnashing their teeth at me right now, because we both have the privilege of being in tenure track or tenure positions. But in that, frame of reference my advice to my students turns out to have been true so although i'm a little overwhelmed i can actually shift some of my own deadlines if i choose to
1: yeah it's much more lenient the 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 higher up you go in, in many many circumstances which is also why i feel like we should be lenient with our students since they also have a shit ton of things to do and nowhere near the control level of control that we do
0: well, can I tell you something that I did in the, along those lines, which came directly out of one of our previous episodes? Yeah. So we spoke to Susan Bloom recently about ungrading and untesting. And I have done variations of what she had discussed with us in the past, but I, I'm always sort of inspired after we interview our guests to turn around and sort of administer or implement some of the things right away. So I walked into my class, maybe literally the next day, and told both of my classes, because they had their last meetings, like literally the day after our interview. And I said, okay, I want you to finish doing everything you're doing for this class, but I want you afterward to send me an email and tell me what you think you deserve as a grade in this class. And I said, "I, I know. If I were to grade myself as a professor this semester, the first half of the semester, I'd get an A, but honestly, the second half, I'd probably give myself a C for. So I'm, I'm at a B plus, A minus for, as, as a professor, and I can't really hold you to a different standard because we have all sorts of stuff on our plate. So take into account your effort, take into account that some of you are Anthro majors and already knew stuff that, that you've been tested on, so it was easy, and some of you are, some of you aren't, so it's been hard. And tell me what you think you deserve and why. And I will take those requests into consideration when I determine the final grades because I'm not here to punish anyone. Mm -hmm. I'm here to help you in your
1: actual learning.
0: I'm here to help you learn and find success. And it's not about becoming a book of anthropology facts that regurgitates anthro facts, but can internalize something. So I can't tell you how pleasurable reading those emails has been for me. It's just mm-hmm. been really, really a validation of Susan's position and our exploration of that model. A lot of you words can make there, a, but-
1: A suggestion for you to make your life easier, or at least to keep your inbox less flooded. You can. I did that exact same thing because I've done a basically ungraded and very much untested class, but I had them do the same self-assessment with the final of the semester, but through a Google form survey. That way you get everything compiled into one location and your inbox is not flooded and nothing gets missed.
0: That's (laughs) flies.
1: Anyway, we shouldn't be talking about the wonderful Susan Bloom, who I do adore beyond belief and reason. We should be talking about today's guest, who is Dr. Rebecca Gibson, who has been adjuncting here at the University of Notre Dame for a year, year or two now at this point. We'll be bringing her on the show to talk about her research, looking at the history of corsets and the skeletal biological implications of wearing them and what they might say about socioeconomic status and taking a a really interesting feminist perspective on the whole history of wearing corsets.
0: Ooh, how fun. I'm just getting ready to gear up to teach a class on tattooing and body modification, so this sounds like right down my alley.
1: There we go, there we go. Anyway, so welcome to the Sausage of Science, and thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to join us and to talk about the history of corsets and some of the biological implications of corsets.
2: You're very welcome. Thank
1: you for having me.
2: So we always start our, our podcast the
1: exact same way. We've, we've gotten into a routine now, which is kind of learning your own anthropological origin story of what inspired you to pursue anthropology and then even more pursue a career, which is not always the easiest of paths.
2: Well, then it's a good thing we have time because <laughs> I became interested in anthropology as a very small child. My parents got me National Geographic, and I would read all of the things. And then I got to my second time around as an undergrad. I actually flunked out the first time. But my second time around as an undergrad, I went back as a history major. The anthropology department at IU South Bend, where I matriculated, did not have a major yet, but they had a minor. So... I did the history major, I did a philosophy major, I did an anthropology minor, a women's studies minor, and a European studies minor, and thought that the best way to combine all of these things would be anthropology.
1: Out of curiosity, how many credits did you end up
2: graduating with, with all of those majors and minors? It was actually pretty close to the minimum that was needed, because... I managed to make a lot of things overlap and count really well. I think they might have actually changed the requirements after that because I was so efficient. Once I came back, that was done in three and a half years. That's
1: very impressive. Combining all those things into anthropology, you sent us a paper called The Effects of Long-Term Corseting on the Female Skeleton, a Preliminary Morphological Examination, and this was uh, published in the Canadian Student Journal of Anthropology, I believe in 2015. So one, I made a comment of, I really much enjoyed the feminist approach to this. And two, I see Chris holding a finger up.
0: She got us through undergrad, but I I wanted to know about her graduate work as well, and also say yay to flunking out and coming back again, because so did I.
2: Oh, absolutely. Sometimes failing is the best thing you can do for your overall career trajectory. So my master's work is the paper that you read, I had a joint master's in Women's Studies and Anthropology at Brandeis, and then my PhD work is an extension on this paper and uh, is going to culminate in turning my dissertation, which is on the same topic, into a book in uh, late 2020 or early 2021. So I'm in the process of writing that right now. The... Master's I did in the standard amount of time, that was two years. So I was at Brandeis from 2011 to 2013. And then the PhD I started at American University in 2014 and graduated in December,
0: 2017. Wow.
1: Speedy, speedy. Uh, And so what got you into the topic of corsets and kind of the skeletal correlates that come along with it? Tell us that whole origin story. (laughs)
2: So, I love the shape of corsets, and I used to go to a lot of Renaissance fairs, and when I decided to go into biological anthropology, instead of going into archaeology, which was actually my first love, I thought, what really hasn't been done before, and what can I do to combine my women's studies training with the subject of anthropology and with something I'm already interested in, which is fashion? and corsets came to mind and the interesting thing was that I did not have a particularly pleasant time as a master student and the reason that I started this project could almost be put down to saying because I was told I should not do so. Hmm. How Um, many times has that been the motivation
1: for the things I
2: have done in life? Basically, there was one study done on corsets in the late 70s, early 80s, and the person never published it, and then they died. Mm. And so there was a lot of attempting to protect the image and reputation of the person who first started this idea of corsetry who I didn't actually know about until way, way, way far into the story when I sort of stumbled upon their name and their research by accident. And at that point, I was, well, I was pretty miffed. I mean, if I had just been told that this was a thing, then I would have included that in my work and given proper respect to this person's research and everything. And honestly, it changed my perspective on many things about higher education, about how we treat our students, about the things that I want to do as a teacher, because you don't, you don't treat students that way. It was eye-opening, to say the least. But course tree itself is fascinating. It's very understudied. Almost nobody has gone into looking at the skeletal effects. They just acknowledge that the long-term pressure of something over time will give you skeletal effects. So I wanted to go actually the research.
0: Can you tell us about the fieldwork that you did for this? So it looks like some really hard travel to the UK and France. (laughs) But you know, I mean, we joke about these things. But seriously, as as someone interested in body modification, this this is fascinating to me. So so what did you do? Tell us about it.
2: So the fieldwork took sort of a three-pronged approach. I wanted a primary location of research to sort of give me a basis for people who i knew positively would have corseted as adults at least so for that i chose the museum of london's center for human bioarchaeology and their post-medieval collection so post-medieval is really anything from about 1500 onward in this particular case and their saint bride's collection had the best skeletal preservation and uh, the most available skeletons for observation. And women in London who lived in London in a London parish during this time would have had certain things in common, like the food they ate, the water they drank, the pollutants they were exposed to. And very specifically, they would have been wearing London fashions. So I knew that the women in this collection would have had to have corseted if they were going out in public. The second location that I chose was the Musee de L'Homme in Paris, which I will be honest, I chose definitely for the food. And <laughs> also because I can speak French and it's both easier to go someplace where you know the language and occasionally a requirement for a PhD study to have another, a, a foreign language. And that collection was, was interesting because this was, from the very birth of anthropology. This was one of the first collections that was created with an eye towards studying human difference in skeletal biology. And the record keeping was a total mess. There were accession numbers, there were locations, there were ages, and there were sexes. And that was pretty much it for the information that I could get from their records. And I had to, to really do a lot of searching to figure out how I wanted to deal with this because the women who made it into the collection might not have corseted. So I was looking at at two very disparate populations in terms of the skeletal biology.
1: And so you said something that actually leads to another question that women during this time period, so we're looking at 1800s, if they wanted to go out in public, they had to wear a corset. And you talk about in your paper that the corset created this physical ideal and you also talk about some of the history of the ancient roman ideal of of, you know a woman's body is very different than what we see with the corset ideal so where do you think the origin of this crazy narrow waist came from
2: so i think that the crazy narrow waist in a lot of cases physically at least was sort of a byproduct the correct shape was the thing and the dimensions that the shape were was encompassing were not so important as having that particular look. So an emphasis on creating a larger breast area, de-emphasizing the waist, and then re-emphasizing the hips, regardless of how big or how small the woman was in the meantime. And then that extreme pressure over time did create the smaller sizes that we see. But as to where the idea came from, Interestingly enough, corseting was meant for the garments first instead of the form first. So you had an emphasis in the late 1600s, in the 1700s, on stiffness in the upper part of the garments. And that stiffness took the form of really creative busks that could be inserted into the front of the garments. And then having all of that weight sort of depending on the busk because garments themselves were getting more elaborate created sort of a weight distribution imbalance and needed the stays to even things out. And then eventually you get to the formation of a full corset or something that has both busks and stays and laces and perhaps other closures that creates that final form. It seems to have been a relatively organic process up until automation came in with the industrial revolution. And once women sort of transitioned from a more private aspect to a more public aspect, they started creating patents for the garments themselves. They started really driving the way that they were seen. But yes, everybody in this time period, especially in urban centers, less so in rural centers, but in urban centers, wearing corset was considered analogous to today's wearing of a bra. You wouldn't go out without one because it was not the done thing. It was not the polite thing to do.
1: And so when someone asked the question, what came first, the corset or the hourglass figure, I (laughs) feel it was the corset.
2: Yes, yes, definitely it was. Although the emphasis on the correct female form, as you mentioned, has been there for a long time. It just changes shape depending on what the fashion trend of the day is. In fact, you can see it sort of as a recursive process when you look at the how corsets disappeared over time. Mm. So we get to the early 1900s and we have two factors, one of which is women wanting more control over their own mobility and the other is the build-up to the world wars where certain materials were getting more scarce so you have the movement from the corset to a bra and a girdle and it's the same function just in a different form Hmm.
0: so you refer to some of the reports by doctors and medical practitioners as Insinuates a certain hysteria on their part.
1: Interesting use of word there.
0: <laughs> I did that on purpose. They're the ones who are hysterical, not yes, the women. Yes. yes. So about uh, the corsets being bad, right? So yep. this sort of sets us up for for hearing what you found. So were they bad? What did you find? So
2: the expansion of the study into first the dissertation and now into preparation for writing this book has been fascinating because I got the ability to go back and look first at much more skeletal data and then second at archival data from the St. Bride's Parish. I'm concentrating the new book project which will be called The Corseted Skeleton on the people that we know who corseted, so the St. Bride's Parish. And what I found is that you do have a changing of both the ribs and the spinous processes and the overall shape of the spine. So, if a woman has worn a corset for a long period of time, the spine loses the S curve and becomes rather straight up and down. The spinous processes divert from normal anat- anatomical position, which is approximately a 45-degree angle, to much, much closer to uh, 30, 20, below 20 degrees of angle at Uh, where they join the body of the vertebrae, and then you get a rounding of the rib cage. So human ribs are wider than they are deep when they're unchanged. And here I'm seeing seeing circular rib cages. This has been confirmed by other researchers as well. Moore and Buckberry did an article in 2016 that showed corseting changes on a male skeleton who was using it to treat the after effects of tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. what he was using it to treat. So I'm seeing these consistently throughout the skeletal data in both collections, in the St. Bride's collection and the Musée de L'Homme collection. But what I'm also seeing from the St. Bride's archival data is that if a woman lived past 18, so if she got to adulthood, she was three times as likely to die past her 60th birthday as she was to die before her 30th birthday. These women are not dying young. And this is what we hear about corseting is that It's negatively impactful on health, that it shortens life, that it killed women, that it killed children, that it had all of these negative impacts. What I'm seeing is massive amounts of demographic data, 30, 40 years of demographic data that cover the St. Bride's Parish during the time where these skeletons were being buried, these women were being buried, that shows that specifically women were experiencing massive longevity during this time period and that the women specifically that I've looked at who have this corset and damage were among them.
1: So you talk a little bit about the relationship of socioeconomic status and corset wear, and which group might be wearing which corset, which I can imagine is probably a difficult thing to really determine looking at some of those corsets. And so that's one question of trying to determine socioeconomic status from the corset, But then how can you determine the socioeconomic status of the skeletal samples you worked with, given you said you had a limited record uh, because they were a mess? And how can you be sure that they just weren't high SES and therefore more likely due to higher status, better nutrition, so on and so forth, to live longer than they were in previous generations?
2: Mm. So that's a lot of what I've concentrated on in this expansion of the study that I did over the summer. I went to several more museums and gathered more data on the corsets that they have. I looked at donor records. I looked at more samples of corsets. I looked at the ways in which they were acquired by the museums. And so I'm still in the process of processing that data but that data is there if you, if you look hard enough. We do have sort of the museum acquisition paradox, which is things that end up being acquired by a museum are gonna have been durable and are gonna have usually been of a higher SES category because museums want pretty things. They don't necessarily want utilitarian things, but there's still a a pretty high proportion of utilitarian corsetry available It's just all in the back rooms, which is nice because if it's not on display that means I get to actually handle it and measure it and do all of these things. Do they let you touch it or are they like super no don't touch these things because they'll crumple?
1: They let me touch it. Okay, and how fragile are they at this point? I mean, you know, they're like over a hundred years old, 200 years old, yeah.
2: So uh, most of the stuff that I've handled has been relatively stable. Some of it's kind of friable. But at that point, I'm either very, very careful or I'll have one of the curators do it for me. I've been very lucky in that all of the curators I've come across have been willing to take extreme amounts of time out of their schedules and just sit there with me and talk these things through and, you know, do their own work while I'm in the room processing the materials. They've really been great. So it's one of these, like, stay
1: tuned answers to the question mm. of, you've started it, but uh, yeah. and this might be... Another one, going back to Chris's question about the doctors, were they advertising these negative effects? Were they telling women of the 1800s don't wear corsets? Because you provided a laundry list (laughs) of various horrible sounding things that could happen to somebody. Were they being told not to wear corsets?
2: Oh, absolutely. So this was, actually I'm going to backtrack on that. This is a multi-pronged public narrative of You are supposed to have the culturally relevant shape. You know, you want that hourglass or whatever the shape of the day is. But at the same time, you're not supposed to appear vain or concerned about your own appearance or overly sexual or, you know, any of these these things that are negative. And then you have the health effects. And the health effects that are detailed in the source that I lean most heavily on, which is Ludovico Falwell's text on corset medicine, history, and hygiene. So he gives this, as you mentioned, it's a laundry list. He gives 46 symptoms of corseting damage. Some of this, I, I question a lot his abilities as a doctor because some of this stuff is not corseting damage at all. It's things like tuberculosis. You mentioned coughing up blood. A corset is not going to cause you to cough up blood. Other things, combined with a corset might cause you to cough up blood, like if you'd been hit and broken some ribs or something, or if you did have tuberculosis, but that's not a product of corseting damage. So I sort of juxtaposed what he was saying with what women themselves were saying, which is another aspect that I really need to go deeper into. Women had very strong opinions on this as well. We just don't hear very many of them because, the mode of the day was to either put women's own concerns off as frivolous or to not allow those concerns to be voiced in the first place. So our surviving data on what women had to say about corseting is spotty and dubious.
0: So it, it sounds like to some extent at least if I can make this analogy, the negative implications that this probably male doctor is saying is about all corseting is actually about the internalized patriarchal image of femininity that causes women sometimes to overcourse it, much like bulimia or anorexia, causes an overweaning, health damaging diet type of approach in, in more contemporary populations.
2: Yes, absolutely. And in fact, he was in favor of medical corseting. He advertised corsets on both sides of his book. And authors at that time had a lot more control over what was put between the covers. So he was definitely in on that. Corsets are terrible, by mine. mine. (laughs) exactly. And he also, he was perfectly fine with them for women over 30 who had stopped bearing children. Mm. So, so it's, you gotta protect those baby-making properties, don't you? Yeah,
0: it's it's like a doctor today saying, "Your diet is terrible. Buy my diet book."
2: Yes, exactly.
0: The at- Atkins diet or something crazy or like
2: that. Ascribing all of women's pain to being overweight, which right. is something that happens. But to go back to your question about the socioeconomic status of the women whose skeletons that I'm looking at for the moment, this was actually easier than I thought it would be and was definitely helped by the availability of the St. Bride's archival data. I didn't want this question to get lost. I like this question. So first of all, we'll go to the Musee de Lome data. These would have been exclusively women of low socioeconomic status, specifically because they had been collected by Georges Cuvier. Cuvier Mm -hmm. was the father of modern anatomization. And he would send people out into the field to go find him quote samples of various human populations and he provided a list of how to persuade the local rulers to give him these people and then how to skeletonize them and reassemble them once they were back in europe so these were not people who had control over their own destinies and it's really unfortunate and The the ethics of using this collection is only sort of belied by the fact that we can use this to tell the stories of the women whose voices got taken from them by our earliest history. The St. Bride's collection, on the other hand, was, was a parish in central London, and the parish kept excellent records during the time period that I'm looking at. So I'm looking at 1770 through 1851. Because it's the lower churchyard, and the lower churchyard was bombed to during World War II, mm. so they excavated to save the skeletal material. And I not only have a really great time period, I have a really clear look at what streets the women lived on, whether or not they were married, that was listed, their ages, what they died of in a lot of cases. I'm getting a lot of causes of death, and whether or not they came from the local workhouse or the local prison. So St. Bride's was the parish church of both a workhouse and a prison. They noted that in the death records, and I'm able to sort of do another tripartite analysis of taking out the ones who were from the workhouse in the prison, taking out the ones who were visiting or who were came in through the local hospitals instead of being organically members of the parish. And then I can examine the members of the parish, look at the streets that they were on at the time and look at the socioeconomic class of the streets.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So by the time I'm done analyzing this, which I plan to write this book this book over winter break. So hopefully by mid January, I will have come very, very far on uh, the analysis of this. But preliminarily it looks like there's sort of an even split between women from the workhouse and women from the parish and there's no other real demographic split like people of all ages went through the workhouse people of all ages went through the parish so i'll really have to do much more work digging into that uh it's going to be very fruitful and very interesting i think
0: so we we look forward to that book thank you and i hear you have another book
1: that
2: just recently came out. I do. So in September, I published Desire in the Age of Robots and AI, an Investigation in Science Fiction and Fact through Palgrave Macmillan. I use the three entries in the Blade Runner mythos to look at what we want in terms of robot and AI sexual and romantic companionship. It's really fun. I had a blast writing this book and I'm enjoying the fact that other people are reading it and liking it and uh, so I use the book Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and then the first Blade Runner movie which came out in 1982 and the second which came out in 2017 and I also do an analysis of where AI is going in the future and what we can do to do this ethically to make sure we're not creating a race of sex slaves, to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves and the robot companions that we enjoy. And I wanted to include all of the robot stuff too, but my editors were like, you have to choose something. So I chose the Blade (laughs) Runners. And so there's a, a lot of room for expansion in this particular project too.
0: So your subject matter that you research is inherently interesting. So I wonder if you then spend all your time doing this or if you put it all aside and do something really banal for fun or <laughs> or or what. What do you do for fun? How do you find balance in your life?
2: So I guess that depends on how you look at banality. I read a lot. I read extensively. I have I think 20 25 books in my to be read pile. I have a total of over 3,000 books in my little apartment here. What What are you
0: reading right now for fun?
2: What I'm reading right now is Anne McCaffrey and Mercedes Lackey's co-written book, The Ship Who Searched. It is the second book in the series. The first book is The Ship Who Sang. It's about encapsulated brains that are built into ships that then go off and have adventures. I'm heavy into the sci-fi fantasy aspects, of course, but... I love mysteries. I'm a huge mystery buff. I love all sorts of nonfiction.
0: Listeners should note that she's apparently surrounded by books because she's just leaning in various directions (laughs) to see.
2: (laughs) Yeah, they're all over the place. I decorate with them. There's books in every room of of the house, including the bathroom, because I read in the tub sometimes. I have an extensive collection of stuffed animals, which you can also see right (laughs) beside me. I have an extensive collection of colored inks I like to draw, although that's gotten a little more difficult lately. I wear braces on my hands because another reason that I got into corseting is I have a a genetic condition called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a collagen malfunction condition. And so the fine work that goes with pen and ink drawing kind of escapes me now, but the corsets help with the condition. So this is... Another development in how my research surrounds me.
0: That's fascinating. Um,
2: And so I know
1: you're you're highly active on social media. And so if people want to get in touch with you to discuss corsets or robots or science fiction fantasy novels, uh, what are you willing to share and put out there?
2: (laughs) Sure. So on Twitter, I am at our Gibson girl. And on Facebook, I have a Facebook author page, which is facebook.com slash skeleton. That's where you can get only updates about my scholarly work. The Twitter page, you get basically everything. Chris!
0: I'm also on those things. Is that what you're going to ask me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Chris Linn, co-host of the Sausage of Science. You can find me at Chris underscore L-Y. <laughs> uh,
1: and I am Kara, the other co-host, and apparently very abrupt co-host, of uh, the Sausage <laughs> of Science. And you can find me at Kara Akabak on Twitter.
0: Caroline Owens is our wonderful producer who makes us sound articulate.
1: We also need to thank the Human Biology Association and the American Journal of Human Biology for their wonderful support of this podcast. And thank you, Rebecca, for joining us today for a really interesting discussion on mostly corsets, but
2: some robots. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great.